you're listening to Arts Talk Radio, and I'm Michael Hasted. We bring you regular news, reviews and interviews relating to all aspects of the arts in Holland, concentrating on events in Amsterdam, The Hague, Rotterdam and the surrounding areas. Arts Talk Radio Online. Features on the arts in English. Two completely different items this week. Later, Amsterdam-based comedian Greg Shapiro will be reading from his book The American Netherlander. But we start with a report from Zoe Bass on an important exhibition at the Kunstmuseum in The Hague. I'm sitting here again with Wendy Fossen, um, art historian director and, and owner of um, Casa dell'Arte and uh, Wendy it's lovely to be here again with you. It's lovely to be talking to you again after <laughs> so so long. After some time indeed yeah. and we've been talking about the work of a fascinating artist her name is Paula Rejo and she is um, Portuguese but she has spent many years in London and she has recently had a large exhibition at the Tate gallery. Now, this woman is 87 years old, you just yeah, told she'll, me. Yeah, she'll just have her birthday on the 26th of January. Wow, so. okay. And she has been painting since she was, well, she started art school when she was 16. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she has an incredible uh, oeuvre of, of work, and perhaps you can just tell us a bit about, about her personal life first, Wendy, because I think that is fascinating. She's a woman of real strength, I think. Yes, she definitely is, and her personal life is the foundation of her art, basically. Mm. You call her Rejo. <laughs> I don't speak Spanish nor Portuguese, <laughs> so I'll just Fine. call her Rigo, as she's called in, in England yes, as yes. well. Uh, and um, she was born in 1935 in Portugal. And Portugal, at the time, was a dictatorship between 1926 and 1974. Oh, I forgot his first name. Uh, uh, Salazar mm. uh, was the dictator over there. And she was born in a family of Anglophiles. Her father was an Anglophile. He had, when she was born, he and his wife left Rego with his parents and he went to England to work there. And about um, two and a half years later, they came back. So she grew up first with her grandparents, which, which was perfectly fine. They're really lovely people. Uh, and then her parents came back. She was sent to English school in Portugal between 45 and 50 and then her father said well Portugal is no country for women so he sent her off to finishing school in England and the reason for this so her father didn't want her to grow up any further or be like a, a teenager and a, a young adult mm. in this country. So he sent her to, uh, to England, to school there. Right. And then she found herself, or well, she took herself to art school, he yes. told me, at the yes. tender age of 16, 16, and she wouldn't be turned away. No, she wouldn't so be turned away. determination De from a very young age. Extremely determined. Uh -huh. And on the exhibition in the Kunstmuseum, uh, we start when she's 25, uh, but when you read the catalogue or maybe when you've seen the work in, in Tate, you've seen her early works. Her first work she made at the age of 15 uh, in Portugal still and it's called Interrogation and what you see is this woman sitting on a chair and she's bent over, twisted like this. She's trying to kind of protect herself and you see standing next to her the 
just lower bodies from the waist down, men, and one of them is holding a screwdriver and the other man uh, is holding a, um, a drill, uh, and you see like this large bulk in their trousers. So 15 years old, I mean, first, are you capable of painting as good as she did when you were 15? But second, the kind of subject you mm. choose when you're 15. Very I mean, powerful. when you're a great painter and you're 15 years old, what do you paint? Mm. Maybe a landscape or flowers or, you know, but not this. Not so you see that she's extremely politically engaged already at an extremely young age mm. and that is because of her parents and grandparents they were republicans they were anti-fascists so they lived in portugal but they were certainly not agreeing with the dictatorship no. and that's why she was sent away mm. that was something that was in her system she could not let this go by. So when she went to the Slade School of Fine Arts when she was 16, she wasn't really appreciated in the sense that they didn't think she was good enough. And then in the words of one of her teachers who accepted her, uh, he had to explain to the other members of the selection committee why he had accepted her. He said, oh, never mind, she'll go off and get married really quickly anyway. So the assumption was, also in England, that women... You know, they would go to school and they would be being artists uh, just to give them something to do. They weren't expected to become great artists. But I think this is interesting. As you say, she was clearly uh, a sort of a strong, feisty character from an early age. She was very politically engaged and yet her own personal life. She had, well, in some ways, I would describe her quite a messy personal life, which she herself became in some senses a, a, a sort of a victim of the patriarchy through her relations with the man who would later become her husband. So. Yeah, certainly, because when she was at the Slade, she met Victor Willing, and Victor Willing was the promise of the day at the time. He was an extremely good painter, and she was taught by, by Lucian Freud, for instance, who taught at the Slade, and Francis Bacon, so that was the kind of group that she was in. And Victor Willing was already married, and he was sleeping about with, with all these girls, including Paula, and she ended up with him because he did fall in love with her, and he got divorced from his wife in 1959. Uh, by that time, he already had two children with Paula Rigo. Yes, it was a, a messy start to begin with. So we know a little bit now about her personal life, so perhaps we can talk about her, her artwork more, because if you, if you look at what she's produced over the course of, what, 87 years, it's an <laughs> impressive uh, output. But it's also so varied in style and form. It's really, it seems to me like there, there would be something for everybody uh, in this exhibition, yeah, irrespective of your art yeah, tastes. Yeah, it is. I must warn you because it's uh, a very confronting what you see but as you said it's she used a, a wide range of media she used she started with the collages in the 1960s and then um, she moved to gouaches and um, acrylic painting move again and in a next step in the 1990s to uh, the pastel paintings and she's basically like you can describe it as psychological realism in the beginning, the first years with the collages, it was for m more to kind of get away with her political 
commentaries on the, the regime mm-hmm. uh, because they were still fairly abstract and in that way she could comment uh, and resist the regime in such a way that the, the, the censorship wouldn't pick it up but then in the 1970s she moved more to a more figurative type art um, with uh, acrylic uh, paint and the subjects also changed. Uh, she took more inspiration from her personal life, which had to do with the fact that in 1966, uh, Victor Willing was diagnosed with MS. So that was an incredible blow to her. She fell into depression and a lot of drinking, which resulted in 40 years of psychotherapy based on, on Jungian psychotherapy. This, the, this, the kind of subjects, kind of switched from the more politically engaged Mm. subjects in the 1960s to the more personal subjects. But she has been inspired by a wide range of topics. Well, I mean, we also saw that 10 pictures she did linked to the issue of abortion. Exactly, which came very close to her personal life. As you said, you know, the the personal life is, is, is a red thread throughout her oeuvre. Which is usually the which is quite often the case with painters, of course. But for her, it is very much. You see that through her art, she deals with her her own life, uh, and that's the title also of the documentary that was made by her son, um, Nick Wheeling, Secrets and Stories. And in every painting, there are secrets and stories that you want to express. You have and the influence from outside. So the outside world has an impact on your inner world, and that's what you express in your paintings. Mm -hmm. So she also described herself as being very shy, especially when she was younger. But through her art, she could express herself. And in what way? Well, she certainly didn't hold back in her art, did she? Definitely not. But I mean, I think this also, what you've been saying to me, it reminded me in that sense a bit of the work of Frida Kahlo in that Yes, her life is really in her paintings. She doesn't seem to hold back. No. It's very open. Yeah. But I was also wondering, you know, who was she influenced by? Because, because as you said, she has gone through a lot of stages. But there, there is one series which is called the Possession series, which is about a woman lying on this couch, like in a therapeutic situation. And she's inspired by a photographs of hysterical women and that has a twist of Lucian Freud you know that when you think okay well she was taught by him but I wouldn't say that she's inspired by a specific painter but more uh, inspired by the general development in art the the most visible thing I think in her work is the fact that she looks upon life from a female perspective Mm. and also incorporates that in her paintings. That started also when in the 1990s she was asked to to become associate artist of the Tate. She was asked to decorate uh, the restaurant there. She was confronted with all these artists in the museum. No, I think it was a National Gallery, sorry. Mm. So throughout the National Gallery, whenever time zone you see, it's male artists. So painting art is a male thing. And that got her thinking again about the patriarchal society. You know, um, So at first she didn't want 
to to be there but then she said you know this is the best way because now I can it also got her thinking again about the position of women so she against against the stream of abstract art especially in the 1960s and 70s she started to paint figuratively again uh, what you see her doing is that she th this grand theme of historical paintings with always these subjects of biblical themes mm. or battle scenes with men doing something grand mm. she moved that to a more personal scene with her personal life dealing with the illness of, of Victor Winning and also from a female perspective. Mm. Well Wendy uh, as I said the little bit that I've seen this afternoon is certainly I, I feel as I said before there will be something for everyone here. Yes. Um, she has produced an incredible oeuvre of, of work and uh, this, this exhibition is already running. It's I already running and it's running until the 20th of March mm. so we still have a fair amount of time. Everyone has see. time and hopefully with things opening up now there's no excuse not to go. Not to go, <laughs> definitely not. Wendy Fossen of Casa dell'Arte, thank you so much for joining us on Arts Talk today. You're welcome, thank you. Zoe Bose was talking to art historian Wendy Fossen about the Paul Arrego retrospective at the Kunstmuseum in The Hague. It runs until the 20th of March and is highly recommended. Arts Talk Radio Online over the past two and a half decades, Amsterdam-based American comedian Greg Shapiro has become a familiar figure on the Dutch comedy circuit and many other circuits besides. His third book, The American Netherlander, 25 Years of Expat Tales, was written during the months of Corona lockdown when all live performance venues were closed. Greg has been reading extracts from the book exclusively for Arts Talk Radio. And he starts, rather cleverly, with an introduction and chapter one. I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy, a Yankee Doodle Do or Die, a real live nephew of my uncle Sam. to take a job for just one summer. 25 years later, yeah, I'm still here. So, fair warning, the Dutch can be addictive. Now, I suppose I am the classic definition of an expat, because I grew up in one country, I moved to another country, and then I stopped. I came to the Netherlands thinking, oh, nice country. Shame about the language, but I stayed anyway. I came for work, I stayed for love, and, when I have to, I speak the language called Dunglish. Now, I happen to live in Amsterdam, and a lot of this book takes place there. But, hey, I've spent time in all corners of the Netherlands, from Den Bosch to Den Helder, from Limburg to Leeuwarden, from Scheveningen to Schiermonnikoog, and I love it all, except for Ternersen, sorry too close to Belgium. The fact is, there are 12 provinces in the Netherlands, and 10 don't have Holland in the title. This gets pointed out within 1.5 seconds when you perform a show in, say, Eindhoven. Hello, Holland! Quickly results in, yeah, hello, this is Brabant! 
I even had trouble when I performed in Friesland. I said, Friesland, my favorite province. And someone yelled, this is not a province. This is an occupied territory. So let that be a lesson to everyone. Don't mess with Friesland. When I got here to the Netherlands, the country couldn't quite make up its mind what to call itself. Interestingly, neither could I. Growing up, my name was Greg Shore. Shore was my stepfather's name. But it was the Dutch who would interrogate me about my authentic name. Oh yeah, sure, but what is your birth name? Shapiro? Well then that is your name. Now, I grew up in America, thinking that Shapiro sounded too ethnic, specifically Jewish. But Dutch people I encountered universally replied, Shapiro, cool name. What better way to say welcome? And my name was not the only thing that would change. When I came to the Netherlands, the country marketing said, visit Holland. The logo of the tourism board was a tulip saying, Welcome to Holland. And the in-flight KLM magazine was called the Holland Herald. So it's no wonder that maybe most people fail to realize the name of the country is, in fact, the Netherlands. Maybe it's just too long, too clunky, not great for marketing. But then came a little viral video called The Netherlands Second Video, which turned out to be pretty good advertising for the country's true name. And soon after that came the Netherlands winning the Eurovision Song Contest. And now, for the first time in at least 25 years, the Dutch government is ditching the term Holland from all official correspondence and rebranding as the Netherlands. <laughs> and since I did the voice for that one video, I guess, in part, I can say, you're welcome. Okay, now that was the intro. Here comes Chapter 1, Amsterdam, Day 1. The date was the 4th of April, 1994. The question was, would I be willing to give up my acting career in Manhattan to come do my comedy in Amsterdam just for the summer? Now, since I was living on tips in Manhattan and paying rent with a credit card, the answer was an immediate yes. When new Amsterdam is too expensive, there's always old Amsterdam. Now, my idea of Amsterdam was the one shared by most Americans, I suppose. Yes, Rembrandt and Van Gogh and Frank, and then sex and drugs and downhill from there, right? In America, if we hear about the Netherlands at all, it's the Dutch people are all drug-doing, drug-dealing, baby-killing, grandpa-murdering, left-handed pedophiles. And once I got here, I realized it's not true. According to Dutch people, uh, yeah, that is Belgium. I remember getting off the plane at Schiphol Airport and thinking there must have been a mistake. It was such a modern, sleek, well-designed airport, and the baggage carts were actually larger, ha, larger than their American counterparts. Not to mention, the baggage carts were free of charge. I had seriously misjudged the Netherlands. The signs were in English, the ads were for, like, Samsonite, and the first thing I saw out of customs was a Burger King. I thought I was in Pittsburgh. 
and the charm offensive continued. Instead of having to surrender my baggage cart, I was able to take the thing right down to the train platform. That was my first time on a walkway escalator, and the handbrake on my baggage cart actually worked. Within one hour, I had already started to redefine my definition of second world country. That term was now reserved for JFK International in New York City. Before leaving Skipole Airport, I took care of my to-do list of now anachronistic technology. I went to a place called the GWK Currency Exchange to trade my U.S. dollars into Dutch Guilders, abbreviated with FL, because of course... This was a currency that no longer exists. And even at the time, it seemed pretty whimsical and antiquated. One of the coins that they gave me said two and a half? From back in the days when I guess people counted on two and a half fingers. I also bought a public transport pass called a strip card, since access to Dutch trams somehow involved stripping. The alternative was riding black, which to me sounded like a stripper name. And lastly, I procured a phone card for making phone calls at these things called public phone booths. These triangular glass enclosures that were also known as phone boxes or in Dutch, pissoirs. Culture shock. From the modern Schiphol airport, I then took the train into Amsterdam Central Station, and there it was, the rundown former glory I'd been expecting. Stepping out of the train, I quickly realized the smoking section was everywhere, the smell of cannabis was not limited to the coffee shops, and instead of ferry boats on the water side of Central Station in Amsterdam, there was a veritable junky wasteland. Today, on the waterside, there are dedicated bike lanes, harborside cafes. Then there was just a busy road, urine-soaked concrete, and a waterfront no-man's land. Locals deemed it too dangerous even to buy a junkie bike. In the train pulling into Amsterdam Central Station, you could look down and see prostitutes performing live sex shows, junkies shooting up. It was an urban garden of earthly delights, the Amsterdam version of Hieronymus from den Bosch. Bosch. After exiting the station, on the Centrum side, and dodging a team of hotel hawkers, remember those? I was face to face with the Damrak. Now, the Damrak, circa 1994, was just a messy barrage of tacky signs for tourist trap shops, made worse by barricades from complicated street construction. So basically nothing has changed there. Now, outside Central Station, I remember my first impression was the bikes. I had never seen so many bicycles at one time in one place. It seemed like there were more bikes than people. And that was 100% accurate. It still is. We don't know how the bicycles are repopulating. Government officials are constantly trying to thin the herd. But there it is. There are more bikes than people. Now, my second impression was not just the bikes. It was the people riding the bikes. They were so tall. I'd spent most of my life being the tallest one around. And now, maybe I could feel more at home. 
And specifically, I was noticing the women riding the bikes. Now, was it me, or were they all showing a lot of leg? I didn't realize it at the time, but the date was the 4th of April, and it was the first really warm day of the year, an occasion which is now known unofficially as Rokjesdag, or Short Skirt Day, the day that Dutch women collectively look in their closets and decide, yes, it's warm enough, I'm going with the short skirt. For me, it was like a parade of Dutch legs saying, welcome, welcome to Amsterdam. I mean, how could I not stay? That was Greg Shapiro, reading from his book The American Netherlander, 25 Years of Expat Tales, which is published by Expat Media and is available from hollandbooks.nl and all the usual outlets, priced at 19.99. The complete audiobook is also available at storytell.nl. Arts Talk magazine provides the perfect companion to Arts Talk Radio with reviews and previews in English of cultural events in Holland. Whatever your interest in the arts, our international team of writers will always provide something new and exciting to see online. That's Arts Talk magazine, all one word, dot nl. Arts Talk magazine, dot nl. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for for this week. Uh, this is Arts Talk Radio, and my name's Michael Hasted. If you have any comments, please leave them in the box below. So, until the next time, it's goodbye from me. Bye. Bye.